from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of green business, the new era of clean energy advocacy, the low cost of a net zero supply chain, and Amazon tries to clean up aviation. It's Project Runway, this week on 350. It's January 29th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from across the USA in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Where did January go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, considering how long 2020 was, you know, at least 18 to 20 months, January feels like 18 to 20 days. Yeah, it just it, it <laughs> minutes. Quickly. Yeah, minutes maybe. But you know, yeah. uh, uh, we we collectively, the world and in the world of sustainable business, packed a heck of a lot into those uh, yes, 18 to did. 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> lots going on, and this week, uh, probably culminating this week. I mean, this is after the inauguration and after re-entering Paris, and you know all the things that happened in week one, day one of the Biden administration, this was what would have been traditionally Davos week. It still had the Davos dialogues, uh, not the same as everybody meeting up there in, in the in the Swiss Alps. But what was packed about this week was, was all of the things that normally happen during Davos week, which is, for example, the global risks report that, that Oliver Wyman puts out with the World Economic Forum. Uh, Larry Fink's letter, we can get to that in a minute, uh, that uh, the CEO of, of, of BlackRock with $8.7 trillion under management, that letters, letters actually that he puts out, one to shareholders, one to CEOs, uh, a number of other uh, breakthrough reports. Oh, oh, right. And then started <laughs> starting off this week, <laughs> I just remembered we did our 14th annual State of Green Business Report. <sighs> Thank God it's Friday. <laughs> but um, we're going to get to that report a little bit later. We're going to play uh, excerpt from the webcast, the conversation that I had with Richard Madison, the CEO of of, of uh, S and P Global True Cost. And uh, but let's go back to Larry Fink's letter. Yeah, I mean, pretty uh, always amazing. You know, we always expect we know that letter is coming out, and it's always got something interesting. I want to pull a couple of things. Uh, as I said, he he did two letters, one to shareholders and one to CEOs. In the one to, to uh, I guess, uh, well, no, this is the CEO letter, actually, that he said um, that companies with a well-articulated long-term strategy and a clear plan to address the transition to net zero will distinguish themselves with their stakeholders, customers, policymakers, employees, and shareholders, by, by inspiring confidence that they can navigate this global transformation. So, I mean, end quote. But wow. So we talked about a well-articulated long-term strategy, addressing the transition to net zero, distinguishing themselves by inspiring confidence that they can navigate 
this global transformation. So I mean, acknowledging the global transformation, uh, the net zero being a part of that in the long-term strategy in that one sentence, and this is a probably a thousand word uh, letter, that to me, I just, I had to read that one over and over because I said, that is, that's a pretty amazing statement for someone to be making to the CEOs of basically uh, all of the, 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 the Fortune 500, S&P 500, the world's largest companies, or at least, uh, and, and certainly the uh, America's largest companies. He also said one other thing. He said, climate risk is investment risk. And that goes mm -hmm. to the heart of this. Uh, climate yeah. risk is investment risk. And, uh, and, and as markets start to price climate risk into the value of securities, it will spark a fundamental reallocation of capital. Again, wow. Wow. I was wowed by something that he writes about a couple paragraphs later. <laughs> um, because he, like the Biden administration this week, points to the fact that this transition, this this work that we're doing has to be just, it has to be equitable, it has to protect livelihoods. It it cannot be a quote dual burden, end quote, right? You know, we 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 must implement it in a way that delivers the urgent change that is needed without worsening this dual burden. And so that I don't think I've heard him really talking about before. Um, it's something that, like I mentioned a moment ago, the Biden administration uh, stated that it will be including environmental justice considerations front and center in its climate plans. And I, I appreciate the optics on that. Um, you know, skeptic, skeptic in me, and I do have parts of me that are skeptical, <laughs> says that yeah, this is talk, but. I think that that's a, a new a new thread that we've seen from him, and um, I I really appreciate it. And, and it also speaks to how much 2020 and everything that happened uh, has um, impacted the world of sustainability, and how sustainability came through that year stronger, not a little bit, but a lot stronger than ever um, because. The Biden administration, Larry Fink, so many others now recognize that all of these crises, the financial crisis, the climate crisis, the pandemic crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and the social justice crisis are all of a piece. And they all pose risks to businesses and the economy, obviously to the individual families and communities as well. And I think that, that and they all stem from combining individual responsibility with collective action uh, driven by uh, bi the business community and the policy community, and that the quicker you get to solutions, the more you can flatten the curve, whatever that curve happens to be, not just the pandemic one. So I think <laughs> we are in this remarkable moment right now. I, it really is. I mean, and, and in some ways, you know, people who have listened to or read, read you and me over the years would say, you've been saying that for a long time. And it's true because every year there's this, uh, this more and more of a moment. But I think this moment really is like none we've ever seen. Uh, and and it bodes, it, it's it's frankly exciting because so much of what we've been talking about, you and me and, and all of us at GreenBiz for so long, 
Uh, and we've not been voices in the wilderness. We've been, you know, we have an amazing audience and community and of, of companies who are truly leading the way. But it's exciting to see at the highest levels of government and and business that this is now the way of the world. So, Joel, you mentioned before the letter some of the reports that came out of the World Economic Forum this week as part of the Davos dialogue, the virtual dialogues. Um, I have one that I'd like to to talk about first, and then I'd love to hear what you were reading because this sort of fell into um, some of the themes actually that were part of the the State of Green Business report, which is this this sort of changing nature of disclosure, the evolution of disclosure. And one of the things that struck me this week was the uh, declaration by World Economic Forum and the International Business Council that they've got the, the uh, they've got like now more than sixty companies, business leaders committed to the stakeholder capitalism metrics. Woo! Um, and this is something that uh, they're touting as sort of a, a universal comparable disclosures, right? So one of the big knock against reporting, as you know way better than I do, is it's 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 not always apples to apples. People people can't figure out how to compare these numbers. Uh, the the investors that need these metrics don't have any way of looking at you know if someone uses two different systems. How did how, how does system A work versus system B, et cetera? So there's been a push for some time, and now this is coming from the CEO, the C-suite level. So we're going to definitely see some explosion of an implosion of of standardization when it comes to the reporting metrics so for me that was a sort of something i was watching out of out of the the discussions this week what about you what jumped out for you yeah and by the way we're going to be talking a lot more about this on this podcast but also in our weekly newsletter that we launched last Mm -hmm. week the greenfin Mm -hmm. weekly Uh, this is going to be a a big topic and of course at the greenfin conference greenfin 21 conference coming up in uh in april Uh, i always uh, geek out every year with the global (laughs) risks report put out by the world economic forum and the and oliver wyman company this is a survey uh, of ceos around the world looking at what are the top global risks by likelihood and impact and and once again, uh, at least on likelihood, um, four of the top five were uh, environmental. Uh, they, last year it was five of, of the five, and the one that uh, that snuck into this um, uh, this year, besides extreme weather, uh, climate action failure, uh, human environmental damage, and biodiversity loss. Uh, the other one you won't be shocked to know is infectious diseases. Ooh, that all of a sudden uh, came on the radar. I don't know why. Um, and also they added a, a sixth and a seventh, which they hadn't in the past, which is digital power concentration and digital inequality, the digital divide, as it's often called. So that's in 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 likelihood. Uh, on impact, um, the top risks, well, infectious disease, uh, but 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 uh, five of the seven again, or, or, or four of the seven, are climate uh, climate action failure, biodiversity loss, natural resource crises, human environmental damage, you know, and then they you add in weapons of mass destruction and uh, livelihood crises, which is an interesting one that people uh, basically unemployment and the, and the mismatch of of skills with jobs uh, that these are the seen as the top global risks by impact. Uh, I, I just find this fascinating because as we look at sustainability as as essentially a risk mitigation tool and and uh, as well as a, uh, the flip side of that is, is creating opportunities from these risks, 
uh, this is always just a, a good, if not a roadmap, at least uh, some signposts along the way. So lots to talk about there. We'll be continue to cover these things. And uh, but we've uh, been talking about the week that's passed. And of course, <laughs> that's slightly different than what we call the weekend review. start us off with a story that uh, not surprisingly actually picks up on one of the themes of the state of green business report and that's greening aviation right (laughs) getting the the carbon out of aviation this particular piece is by our our transportation analyst and senior writer katie fahrenbacher and it focuses on amazon and it's actually um, focused on logistics, which uh, she hasn't doesn't typically uh, write about, but she's picking up more of a focus on on the air cargo operations. And, and as we know, Amazon's air shipping business is huge and booming, um, especially with so many people ordering things, of course, um, online now that very few people are, well, fewer people are going out and buying them in stores. So this week they, they uh, put a round of funding into a company called Infinium, which makes uh, biofuel uh, by taking hydrogen made with clean power and electrolysis. So they're they're backing this company um, and uh, kind of putting it out there that others need to, to do this too. Now, I, I think, um, I think we, we've, you've written about some of these, when well, you wrote the trend in the, in the State of Green Business Report, but uh, you know, there's plenty of other players here as well. Uh, an area ripe for innovation and um, definitely sorely needed decarbonization. Um, What's your impressions of this story? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, first of all, uh, shipping uh, air air freight is one of the the bright spots for airlines, not just uh, Amazon or not just FedEx, DHL and and UPS, but for the Uniteds and Americans, they are uh, making up for lost passenger revenue by Filling their bellies, if not their seats, uh, with with all the packages mm-hmm. that people are ordering, including some from Amazon. I think there are going on other carriers. So this is a great moment to be to be looking at uh, at at some of these things. And and one of the you, you combine that with the fact that uh, Boeing this month uh, said that they were committing uh, by the end of this decade to have a commercial. Uh, air, airplane, not a prototype, but one ready for for flying uh, that would run on 100% uh, sustainable aviation fuel or SAF as it's called. Uh, right now, most planes can only run on 40 to 50%. Even if you know now, there's a big supply problem. There's not nowhere near enough to to fuel even a, a single digit percent. But the fact that planes will be able to fly that this is one of those things where. You need the the planes, you need the fuel, you need the demand, you need the airports, you need uh, the passengers demanding it. You need all of these things to come into alignment. And and so, uh, I guess what what's going on at Amazon and the investments they're making uh, are are another vote of confidence that that aviation is you know could be more sustainable uh, and could start to align with the Paris goals much sooner than anybody thought. And that's a very exciting thing. And and kudos to Amazon for not just investing in these technologies, but but committing to uh, offtake, uh, in this case, uh, 6 million gallons of biojet fuel 
uh, uh, the, well, actually, that's something that Amazon had already committed to. Uh, but I, I know that they're going to be ramping that up as the supply also ramps up. So not only investing in the technology, but promising to buy the fuel as it's produced. So that's a, a great story and and, uh, and and kind of an exciting development. And it leads into the next story that we should talk about from uh, Michael Holder over at Business Green uh, about achieving a net zero emission supply chain could be cheaper than you think. Um, and, and I think this is, this comes from uh, another, uh, Davos week, uh, World Economic Forum, uh, report along with the Boston Consulting Group that says, uh, that decarbonizing supply chains, uh, not only is a game changer in the fight against climate change, but it also can take place or can happen at us, what they say is surprisingly low cost. Um, and so, um, you know, looking at in, in eight different industries and food, fashion, freight, and a number of other things that don't necessarily begin with F, uh, household goods and, and electronics <laughs> and professional services and automotive, you know, looking at what this looks like in multiple segments. And this fits right into what we were talking about earlier, uh, Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock talking about uh, navigating this global transformation and the transition to net zero. I mean, this is a key part of this, where the uh, supply chains is where uh, 80% of, of of companies have the majority of their uh, their impacts, their carbon impacts and overall impacts. So this is a really exciting finding that the, the transition may be easier and, uh, and more cost effective than anyone realized. Yeah, a couple of things jumped out here for me. One is that, you know, clearly with the net zero commitments that we've been seeing out of many com companies, supply chain or scope three being part of that uh, have been featured and prominent. So we, it's important now because more companies are focused on it. I love this fat, this statistic here. One of the findings, 40% of all emissions could be eliminated with measures that yield savings or come at abatement costs below 12 point, you know, $12.10 per metric ton of, of uh, carbon dioxide. So it, wow. Um, like number one, you know, you do this and you save money. The other thing I'm sort of thinking about, and I really haven't done reporting on it, but it just seems to bear, just seems to be a rational thread of thought is as companies work with their suppliers, right? One company works with a supplier. Chances are that supplier is used, being used by another company. So as, you know, sort of the ripple effect, um, you know, company A is, is working with, with supplier B and company C, which also works with, with supplier B, could be also benefiting. So I think I think that that isn't talked about enough for, potentially, um, as we see these supply chains, just generally speaking, um, clean up. And and that's, I think that's why we hear more about industry related focuses on this. So pretty pretty amazing uh, area we, we've been talking about. It's one, another one of those things we've been talking about for a long time, right? <laughs> supply chain decarbonization and transparency, but um, Nice positive sign. I like this. Yeah, well, a lot of uh, possibilities there, but there's also possibilities in the third story I want to talk about, which is what comes from Jesse Klein, our contributor, regular contributor, uh, about uh, Unilever Starbucks uh, joining forces with uh, with farmers and some funders to uh, to turn food waste into energy. This, of course, is a story that's not at all new. We've been taking uh, food waste and putting them in anaerobic biodigesters to create natural gas from food waste for a long time. 
doing it at scale has, has been long in the making, but I think this is shows the next iteration and the next ramp up and, and how this technology is starting to come to scale. And of course, part of that, is, as it always is with everything, almost everything in sustainable business are partnerships. In this case, something called the, uh, the new partnership called the Farm Powered Strategic Alliance with Unilever, Starbucks, and the Dairy Farmers of America. Um, and so, uh, again, you know, using this uh, uh, biodigester technology, but ramping it up and with Vanguard Renewables uh, leading the, the charge here and, and tapping into funding sources uh, to finance all of this, uh, private investors and banks. Um, and, and finding a business model that allows this to scale in a significant way, uh, where, uh, you, and some of the members of the alliance have committed to buying back this, uh, this renewable natural gas, uh, buying a portion of the gas produced from the waste. And then the rest, I guess, is going to be sold into, into community, uh, grids. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a, a great development. Um, what did you see in here that was exciting for you, Heather? I think the financing thing that you mentioned before, uh, because these projects, as as you mentioned, have have been around for a long time. But in order to do them, like a dairy farm would have to invest in the technology itself. And this partnership is focusing on helping. They're basically Vanguard is basically assuming the costs, right? Um, and and helping put this technology on the farm or wherever it needs to be. And then allowing the the farmer to benefit in some way, like they could be getting the energy back, they could be getting some portion of of uh, payment for the 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 manure and the food waste that's that's contributing to the you know to the feedstock for this. And so I think the financing model um, is is particularly uh, smart here. And they're they're also handling log- logistics, right? Getting getting the stuff to the place where it needs to be digested. There, I think there was uh, ten different facilities uh, that they're hoping to have up and running by the end of 2021 in New York, Colorado, Georgia, Nevada. Um, and so so it's, it's I think, uh, thinking through the logistics and the financing in a different way. And that, that, that's what the, the really unique part of this project is. And with all great ideas and sustainability, the cream rises to the top. So as you said earlier this week, we did our annual webcast on our 14th annual uh, State of Green Business Report. Um, I had a conversation with Richard Madison, the CEO of S&P Global True Cost. Um, Heather, you listened in on that, uh, and I know you pulled a few clips. So what struck you from that conversation, and, and what did you want to share? There are so many moments that I could highlight, but I picked two themes, partly because they're they're really resonating loudly with the green biz community right now. And we've already mentioned one of them uh, earlier, which is disclosure, right? So the urgent need for deeper disclosure of metrics and information related to ESG issues. Uh, Rich Madison, your, your, uh, the CEO of TrueCost spoke about that quite, quite extensively in his remarks. And in this first clip, he talks about how larger companies are embracing the practice and how disclosure requirements and frameworks are likely to evolve during the Biden administration. 
Disclosure will be a big topic this year in the Biden administration, because if we're to unlock capital to be directed towards sustainable outcomes, you need to see back-to-back disclosure between projects and companies who are seeking the finance to uh, those who are providing the capital to those who are ultimately providing the capital. So you need to see back-to-back disclosure sitting between a company, its shareholder, and in fact, uh, the managers, investment managers, as well as asset owners. So you need to see disclosure at all levels if we're to actually get flow of capital from those who are providing the capital. So... um, Good news is the record uh, is quite good on disclosure. So we're seeing a huge increase in disclosure over the last decade. 90% of the largest U.S. companies now publish a sustainability report uh, versus only 20% in 2011. So that, that's a big ramp uh, in disclosure. But only 16% mentioned ESG or environmental, social and governance issues in SEC filings. So that's, that's a bit of an issue because um, you still have a lot of investors who will only really read the SEC filings. Um, and will not necessarily digest sustainability reports. Um, and so it's likely that we'll see greater focus from the SEC under a Biden administration on ESG, uh, in particular on looking to various different standards. We're also seeing consolidation in the standards marketplace and regulators all over the world are, are observing this quite carefully, including the International Financial Reporting Standard and IOSCA, which is a securities regulator as well. So against that backdrop, we also see some interesting heightened awareness amongst banks. So I just wanted to note this because the Federal Reserve, the Fed, has actually joined the network for greening the financial system, which now brings that network to really the majority of the world's largest central banks are now members of that network. So so what does that really mean? That means that because central banks are now part of a network that is interested in climate change, you can expect to see more pressure on banks in the U.S., to be stress-testing their portfolio for climate risks. And against that backdrop, when you have 60% of the S&P 500 at high risk of climate change, the assets that they own have a very high risk of climate change, according to our own analysis, um, that means there are going to be some some really pointed questions being asked by uh, people like the Fed and various other central banks across the world. There will be a trickle-down effect to companies as a consequence of that. So companies that are seeking to finance um, fossil fuel-based activities may find it more difficult to do so under a Biden administration. And in terms of disclosure, there are still reasonably big gaps. So it's one thing to do a scenario analysis on your own products or your own operations of uh, you know emissions and natural capital costs might actually supply uh, lie in the supply chain. And so, how do you do uh, an analysis of the future on your supply chain when you're, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty around that? And so, I think we're going to need to see ever more sophisticated approaches to analyzing um, a diverse set of assets across the world sitting under different regulatory jurisdictions. Um, but that doesn't mean that analysis shouldn't be done. It's, it's a, it is a complex landscape, but it is now a, a landscape that is increasingly material to shareholders, to banks, and to various others who are providing capital in markets today. The other segment I'd like to highlight is his comments about finance for investments that are focused on sustainable infrastructure and other initiatives aimed at supporting the transition to a, a clean, inclusive economy. It turns out that 2020 was a turning point in interest for this and the rise of funds 
that include this focus, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? You'd think that with the pandemic going on, you might have seen a, a, a sort of easing of interest, but but that is far from the case. So here, Rich Madison recaps recent developments and offers some predictions about what's to come. You might have thought that the pandemic would put the brakes on sustainability from an investment standpoint. And in fact, it did the reverse. It, it uh, you know, let go of the brake and put the, the, the pedal to the metal on the accelerator. Uh, what we really saw was that against the backdrop of huge outflows from capital market, you know, equity funds, for example, in capital markets and ETFs, um, there was a very significant inflow. Uh, to ESG funds. Um, so much so that, that there was a lot of scrutiny of the funds that were calling themselves ESG funds. Um, and so we're going to need to see, or we will actually see, um, more investigation of claims uh, by funds uh, and a more detailed examination of the holdings that funds actually hold uh, the claim to be uh, sustainable and green. Um, but nevertheless, we saw huge inflows. And so whether you believe there is outperformance or not uh, from an ESG perspective, uh, when you see inflows and you're an asset manager, it almost doesn't matter. The, the asset management industry is gearing up to accept those inflows, to structure funds in line with the appetite. So, so that's the current trend. And in line with that trend, we also are sitting in the middle of the largest wealth transfer in history. You're seeing in the US alone, 68 trillion being handed to millennials right now. And, uh, for most millennials, the majority of millennials, according to uh, surveys, um, would prefer to make sure that their investments uh, have some kind of positive impact. Uh, you, and, and so, if you imagine, we have heightened disclosure requirements. So, you've got to prove your fund is green. You've got to make sure that the companies you invest in are green and sustainable. And against the backdrop, if you're going to attract people to invest in your fund, uh, you actually have to have more green funds. You have to prove that something is changing in the real world. And so, greater transparency in the investment landscape and a greater demand in terms of, uh, you know, who, where you want to, where, where investors actually really want to put their money is going to lead to a huge change in capital markets. And most financial institutions are recognizing that. So, this year, we expect to see um, a lot of different things. We expect to see many more uh, funds bringing up targeted at sustainability and green outcomes. We're seeing um, uh, sustainable debt is likely to go through the roof this year. And, and one of the reasons for that is the Build Back Better uh, relief funds, the recovery funds. So, if you look at Europe, for example, Europe has a 750 billion euro recovery fund. A third of that, sorry, 30% of that is designed to be dedicated towards green and sustainable projects. In fact, you have to prove that you have a green or sustainable project in order to get the funding. So, um, alongside government uh, recovery funds, you will see a lot of private capital crowding in alongside that effort. Um, and so, I think we'll, we'll see a huge amplification of uh, sustainable debt uh, being issued this year and green bonds continuing to rise. And, and they did continue to rise last year. So, that's a trend that's just going to continue and accelerate. And the interesting thing about it as well is that when you look at um, green loans in many parts of the world, getting a loan when you can prove that you are uh, dedicating that loan to something green is often cheaper. 
so in China, it's, it's definitely cheaper to get a loan in China if you're financing a wind farm than if you're financing a coal-fired power station. And that may well become the case in Europe and the United States at some point fairly soon. I know that several banks are actually doing that already. Well, thanks for those, Heather. And there's a lot more where those came from. If you want to listen to the entire hour-long State of Green Business 2021 webcast, you can find it by going to greenbiz.com slash webcasts. I'm Sarah Golden, Senior Energy Analyst at GreenBiz. And if you've been listening to the podcast or checking out the GreenBiz website, you may have seen some of my stories about clean energy for Biden. Clean Energy for Biden is an all-volunteer group, which includes 13,000 clean energy professionals, myself included, that supported Joe Biden and his clean energy platform. And as of last week, Joe Biden is president, and clean energy professionals helped get him there. So for the first time, it feels like for the clean energy sector, the stars are aligning. There is the technology and the finance and now the politics. My favorite triangle, I've never given a lecture at Stanford where I didn't put out my favorite triangle, is technology, policy and finance when it comes to, you know, building a clean energy future. That's Dan Riker. He is the co-chair of Clean Energy for Biden and also the former assistant secretary of the Department of Energy and a professor at Stanford. That triangle he's talking about is called the Riker Triangle, and it's a helpful model to understand how to deploy clean energy quickly. Technology is at the top of the triangle because ultimately policy and finance are really just about enabling the development and deployment of the technology. It's actually getting the technology out there, as you know, that's what this is all about. And there's this rumor I've never confirmed nor denied at Stanford that I have this triangle tattooed on my back. So, but... <laughs> More, more, more seriously, you know that's that's been my whole approach to this area, which is trying to put those three those three elements together in a in a very powerful way, and that's exactly what the arrival of the Biden administration is going to is going to accelerate. Early signs indicate that Biden is taking a systems approach to integrating his clean energy agenda, and that is super exciting being taken seriously across a very large swath of the, of the incoming Biden administration. And that bodes very well for both, you know, the, the business of clean energy and, even more importantly, um, you know, addressing the climate crisis. Dan shared how the maturation of the clean energy sector could be reflected in the evolution of the size and influence of this group. When I got started... You know, in the Clinton years, most people called it alternative energy. You hear that phrase very rarely these days. And that's a function of the fact that, you know, renewables, for example, are a significant percentage of the new newly added capacity in the United States. It's also a function of the fact that in the earlier days, we called it clean tech. We really treated it as something that was a technology play, um, still was not... Uh, ready for prime time, Um, and we now call it clean energy. And in fact, we made a very direct decision when we formed Clean Energy for Biden to not follow what we had done in the Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigns. The, The groups then were clean tech for Obama and clean tech for Hillary. 
But again, we had decided we had become mainstream. This was no longer a, you know, a largely a tech sector backed by the venture capital community. This was now a large mainstream energy sector backed by uh, large um, investment firms in, in the U.S. and around the world. You've seen how this group has evolved over these last few um, campaign cycles. What have you noticed about the way it has matured, either in those that are participating or perhaps ways that you've started to hone in better on language or messaging or benefits? What, what have you seen change over this time? Well, first, the obvious, the most obvious is just the huge level of interest. You know, we <laughs> still marvel today that we grew to 13,000 people who signed on to the organization. We never saw that kind of growth in these other organizations. First of all, um, second of all, this is so so different in how much it's being driven by the industry itself, by the by the workforce. You know that ranges from professionals in business and engineering and design to the to the folks who actually are installing the projects or are building the projects and operating them. We can now count the workforce in the millions in the U.S. Um, it's, it's no longer the, 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 tiny, the tiny percentage of, of U.S. employment that it once was. It's now a, a measurable and growing segment. Last week, Clean Energy for Biden created a new nonprofit, Clean Energy for America, which aims to build on the success from the 2020 election to keep organizing the millions of clean energy workers across the country to be a political force. It's not enough to only to, to work on on a presidential campaign and then and then close up shop. We we've got to we've got to continue on a variety of races at the at the national level, but we've got to get really focused on state and and local races as well. States in particular, because as you know, so many key clean energy related decisions are made at the state level. You know, most of the you know the, the progress we've made on clean energy, much of that has been at the state level. Um, and some of the setbacks we've had have been at the state, big setbacks we've had have been at the state level. So renewable energy standards and clean energy standards are good examples of that. Um, the states have really stepped out smartly on renewable energy standards and, and clean energy standards, but there have also been some big setbacks as well. Um, there have been attempts to, to adopt carbon tax that the state level that, that that those attempts have not generally succeeded. We're not going to, you know, rest quietly between now and 2022. We're going to stay involved and, and get organized. As that force grows, it seems inevitable that clean energy professionals will have more influence in politics. I think clean energy professionals can be very influential um, because they're growing influence as a business sector in the United States and because of the, 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 the skills and drive that they bring to the table. I'm not just hopeful. I'm pretty convinced because they showed themselves to be very capable um, in the President Biden's victory. For Green Biz, I'm Sarah Golden. And 
that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. And as I said, greenbiz.com slash webcast to learn more about what's coming up in our webcast. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 